0: Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work. Um, and you may already know, uh, but a reminder that we are remote recording now, so um, that means that I'm in my bedroom. It's very hot. My cat is very mad. The trash comes by quite a bit. Um, so I'm going to warn you that you might hear some of that, but the audio is likely going to sound, you know, not as bad as I'm making it out to be. (laughs) Casey's a professional. He's going to make us sound great. You may have heard this little voice uh, coming from Venice, California, um, in her microphone, and uh, this is a flashback from the past. I'm going to give a little intro on the fact that this guest was the first person who ever recorded the show, despite the fact that it's not the first episode that we aired. She was our first guest ever. Um, and so I want to reintroduce uh, this blast from the past, writer-director Isa Lopez. Hi, Isa. Hi, April. How are
1: you? It's, it's such a happy moment, you know, after the entire world changed on us and, and many things happened to come back and say
0: hi again. Yeah, you know, sometimes we need a little bit of normalcy and having Issa back in our lives is a little bit of normalcy. Um, And I can also hear the birds chirping from Issa's beautiful home in Venice, California.
1: (laughs) 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 Uh, I'm really glad it sounds beautiful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The ones that sound gross, we're going to get to those soon. Um, So for those of you who need a refresher on Issa's history of filmmaking, please let me give that to you. Issa has penned 11 features, many of which when released became box office hits in Mexican cinema and in 2007 received the National Novel Award granted by Mexico's Institute of Fine Arts. She has directed four of her scripts uh, Efectos Secondarios um, and that's 2006 from Warner Brothers, Casi Divas which is uh, Sony 2008 Tigers Are Not Afraid um, which you guys probably watched on Shudder if you're in the US and Todo Mal which is um, 2018 her release there. Um, She's been a producer on four features penned by her through her production outfit, Pellegrosa, in September 2017, Again, Tigers Are Not Afraid premiered at Fantastic Fest and won the Best Horror Director Award. Uh, Tigers, if you remember, is a dark fairy tale about the ghosts that haunt the children that survived Mexico's drug war, which is one of the reasons why she picked Pan's Labyrinth the last time that she was on the show. Uh, The film opened in Canada and the U.S. for a commercial run in 2019 as part of the Toronto uh, Film Festival to rave reviews, scoring a certified fresh 97% in Rotten Tomatoes. Um, And I think you got like a little uh, trophy for that, did you not? I did, and I loved it. Love it. (laughs) Uh, And it has garnered a total of 55 awards in film festivals around the world, won three. uh, Diosasa, is it Dios? Uh, Diosas. Diosas. Diosas de, de Plata, Plata uh, including Best Director and Best P- Picture, was nominated for 10 Ariel Awards, winning two, uh, the Mexican Oscar equivalent, and has received the enthusiasm and support of such genre legends as Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, and Guillermo del Toro, who is currently producing a film for Lopez. That I'm assuming she can't talk about it yet publicly.
1: <laughs> I, I can talk a little. I thought I thought I couldn't. And then uh, Guillermo himself took it away and I started chatting about it. So I was "Oh really? Like, okay.
0: We can say <laughs> some things. Yeah. <laughs> Follow his lead." So um, I will. What can you, yeah, I do. <laughs> can you just can you describe that in the in the Vegas terms, the the one that you're doing with uh, with Guillermo?
1: Yes. It's um it's a western. It's a mm-hmm. werewolf western. And uh, and such a incredible opportunity for me because it goes into a genre that I've always loved, which is Westerns. Mm -hmm. Um, Not usually a female uh, director territory, which is changing, like most of cinema, beautifully. But it also is an opportunity to dwell and jump into a really, really male universe and male conflict which is the beast and the monster we carry inside of us, and um, uh, but from a female perspective, um, and um, and I think it's, it's so much fun. It's very dark. It's incredibly violent. Oh, you don't say! The draft. <laughs> Can you believe that? Can you believe it is? <laughs> and uh, and I delivered the second draft. Uh, to Guillermo just as as uh the lockdown was started. So I'm waiting oh. on my notes. So did you and, did uh, you start the lockdown for us? Were you what It was me. It was it's, me I it's did like it. a monkey did it monkey so paw. He could be. Yeah, completely. So yeah. so I could I could get the attention of the producer. That's wow. that's that's right. As soon as he reads we're done, just you oh, know, thank God. call okay. him.
0: <laughs> All right, great. Um speaking of male worlds and kind of infiltrating them, we're about to infiltrate a fairly male universe um because isa the movie you chose to talk about today is Blade Runner, um the original. Can you give us a little explanation on why it's one of your fave genre films?
1: Well, I I watched it um I think I probably watched it around 1985 in in a movie theater before it completely, I was in Mexico and, um, and before it completely became the cult animal that it was when it was getting there and, um, and I was unprepared. I, I watched it basically because I was madly, madly in love with Harrison Ford, I think like any Boy or girl, at the, around the, we were all in love with him, and um, and I was obsessed with with uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I was expecting an adventure, and it is, but it's a very different kind of adventure, and it's incredibly dark, and uh, and it goes into the territory of questioning uh, the nature of God, of fate, of death. And uh, and that was what stayed with me way way after watching it. How um, genre movie sci-fi in this case could tackle the most central conflicts of human existence and uh, mark me forever.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a a very different kind of role for Harrison Ford at the time, and we will get into that and that kind of choice to do that. Um, But, uh, of course, for those of you who haven't seen Blade Runner, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause this and watch Blade Runner, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce Blade Runner. Written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, Blade Runner stars Harrison Ford as ex-cop Rick Deckard. One night, Deckard's picked up by Officer Gaff, played by Edward James Olmos. Deckard's old boss shows him a video of a Blade Runner officer administering something called a Voight-Kampff test to a replicant, Leon, as a means to assess his humanity. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden- this the test now? Yes, you're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you what look warm. Down- what? What desert? It doesn't make any difference what desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? But the replicant immediately shoots the officer on the second question. The police want Deckard to act as a bounty hunter and kill Leon and three other replicants, Roy Batty, Pris, and Zora, who are on Earth illegally.
1: I don't work here anymore. Give it to hold. He's good. I did. You can breathe okay, as long as nobody unplugs them.
0: It's not good enough. Not good as you. I need you, Dex. This is a bad one. The worst yet. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic. Deckard shows up to the estate of the man who created the replicants to do some reconnaissance. Um, the man's name is Eldon Tyrell of Tyrell Corp. And he wants to see if the Voight-Kampff test will work on a Nexus 6 model. Tyrell says he wants to see the test fail first and offers Deckard his assistant, Rachel, played by Sean Young. It's a very long, tricky test, but Deckard decides correctly that Rachel is actually a replicant who believes she is human.
1: She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is?
0: Tyrell explains she's a new model who's been fed a bunch of false memories. Deckard then finds Leon's hotel room and searches it, finding photos there that lead him to… his next clue. He returns home to find Rachel professing her humanity, showing him pictures of her past. You think I'm a replicant, don't you? Look.
1: It's me with
0: my mother. And then Deckard tells her they were manufactured, all just a bunch of stuff gobbledygook that Tyrell put in her brain and gave her.
1: Implants. Those aren't your memories, they're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces.
0: None of it's real. Meanwhile, the replicants find an engineer named J.F. Sebastian and begin manipulating him so he will work on them. Will you help us? I can't. We need you, Sebastian. You're our best and only friend. Deckard tracks Zora down and kills her, then gets the order to kill Rachel, too. But Leon shows up and almost kills Deckard before Rachel kills Leon, saving Deckard. Deckard and Rachel become romantic then. Meanwhile, Roy gets Sebastian to get him into Tyrell's house, where Roy requests more time from his maker.
1: What seems to be the problem? Death. Death. Well, I'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction. I want
0: more life, father. Before killing him and then killing Sebastian. Deckard tracks Pris down to Sebastian's home and kills her after a struggle. Then Deckard and Roy fight on the rooftops in the rain, with Roy even saving Deckard's life once, before delivering a moving monologue and succumbing to his expiration date. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain time to die Gaff shows up and makes a comment about Rachel. Deckard returns home to find her still sleeping in his bed. Gaff leaves Deckard a little parting gift on his doorstep, a little origami unicorn, invoking a unicorn Deckard dreamt of once. Deckard and Rachel get the hell out of Los Angeles and, you know, try to live a life as runaway replicants. Um... So the version that I'm talking about, obviously, I think is the director's cut. I get the mixed stuff of like which information is is which. It is um, it is
1: confusing, right? Um, yeah. Uh, the movie was released originally, and correct me here if I'm wrong, but uh, um, the studio, uh, after seeing the cut, decided to add a voiceover from Harrison Ford, which is the version yeah. I saw and the world saw for yeah. many years, mm-hmm. and. Um, and then they added a happy ending, uh, a very clearly happy ending. Yeah. Uh, with a green screen, a little uh, a little <laughs> strange. And it does feel <laughs> like an add-on. And uh, Ridley Scott was never happy about that. And as the movie became the cult uh, monster, it's become, he, uh, and he became Ridley Scott in full. He mm-hmm. could uh, have the clutter enough to, to get one of the, the first director scott that that we saw now it's everywhere right but yeah. uh but back then it was uh, apocalypse now i think was the first i remember and then we saw this one so he took out the whole um voiceover and uh, took out this added ending happy ending and um put back the unicorn dream yeah which was yeah. not in the in the original those are the difference so that is definitely The director Scott.
0: I mean, that was it. Definitely complicated the narrative having that unicorn dream because that means that it it does confirm that he is a replicant. Um, And you know, I think the studio, even um, the writer Fancher, were happier with it being, um, um, you know, either unsaid or that he's not a replicant. Um, And uh, because it might have been too sad. But I find that interesting. that just a couple of sequences actually changed the entire meaning of a film.
1: <laughs> but, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. That's <laughs> what happens when you recut a movie. Uh, you can discover what you were actually trying to say and you didn't know.
0: It's, it's really interesting. I, I think, okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the, this. We are clearly talking about the story. We're not even talking about the special effects, but when this movie came out, it was the special effects that were the, the, big story for a lot of people. And people kept asking Ridley Scott, um, you know, after he had done um, Alien 2, you know, he had pioneered so many things, um, you know, what what was the pressure to come up with something that was amazing and futuristic? And he said, quote, it's actually equal pressure to come up with a good script. But once you get the script you want to do, and it happens to be in this genre, it's a matter of interpretation. So the pressure is the most interesting part of creating the film, end quote. And I thought that that was interesting, where he's continuing... In that interview, he continues talking about how hard it was just to do the script. Um, And he was, like, thwarting any question about the special effects. He was just like, I want to talk to you about uh, the story. And, you know, um, I think that that was... Obviously, the studios are going to be like, oh, there's amazing stuff in the special effects. You know, he creates this whole, you know, new Los Angeles. And and it looks believable and amazing, especially for that time period. But he was still focused on the story. And I, I was hoping that we could talk about that particular thing, where you can have the most amazing special effects. But if you don't have a story, you're still fucked.
1: Oh, my God. Particularly because I'm right now in the process of writing uh, next projects, and uh, the and I always will say to anybody who will listen to it, directing any idiot can do it. I'm telling you, the the trick is you have to surround yourself with incredibly talented people. That is the true talent of a director. If you find a genius production designer and a genius DP and uh, and the right visual effects person and you cast a movie perfectly you can stand back and let it happen pretty much I'm telling you but but writing the story right that's a completely different story and that's where the true sweat blood and tears for me is and that's where if you don't get that right, it doesn't matter how good the rest of it is. It doesn't matter how great and amazing the visual effects are. Mm-hmm. You're going to end up with a bad movie. But I can I'm- completely see Ridley Scott obsessing over the script. I can absolutely understand it.
0: I have to ask in the mindset of, you know, when you made Tigers Are Not Afraid, um, you know, I would say Mexican um, companies weren't really doing the special effects that you guys were doing in that. Wasn't it kind of a, like a teamwork effort to be like, OK, well, we want to make this in Mexico and we want Mexican companies to do this. So we have to, you know, figure out how to pull together and, and get it done. But now you have, I would say, infinite more resources just having a producer like Guillermo del Toro and um you know i'm wondering if that changes your writing process knowing what you can and can't do now
1: it's super interesting because um even though i, I am working with el toro and and uh, the movie is set up at searchlight um the the budget constrictions are big and it was a decision that del toro and i made very early on mm-hmm. because uh, a constricted budget buys you freedom uh, yeah. The bigger the movie, the more control um, the money people are going to have in the final decisions. A Case in point, Blade Runner, where <laughs> where you cannot even get your own ending. Yep. Because yep. it's an expensive movie. It doesn't matter that you're a massively big, recognized director, as Scott was at that point after Alien. Um, he still couldn't get away with his own ending. So mm-hmm. in order to 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 keep control, if you make it smaller um you can control better the universe. Now on that's on one hand, and you want that. On the other hand, you're creating a complicated big universe. Uh and in our case it's it's period and it's um and it's visual effects we have creatures mm-hmm. that change and become and and um and how do you marry those two things? Uh, the way I'm approaching it in writing right now and, and we had A conversation about it is and it's it's on par with the way i have approached every project i've written is write it without limits you don't nobody's budgeting your dreams when you write Mm -hmm. then when the story is there when the characters are there when everything works within the story is when you have to sit down and 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 roll your sleeves and figure out how to do most of it, or the most vital parts of it, without it looking cheesy, because you're trying to put it in a constrained budget, Mm -hmm. um, but still keeping the spirit of what you're trying to say, and you're going to lose a lot, and you're going to become quite
0: inventive on how to solve stuff. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back uh, to talk a little bit more about Play Runner. Hey everyone, it's I, John Hodgman of the Judge John Hodgman Podcast. And I, Elliot Kalin of the Flophouse Podcast. And we've made a whole new podcast, a 12-episode special miniseries called I, Podius, in which we recap, discuss, and explore the very famous 1976 BBC miniseries about ancient Rome called I, Claudius. We've got incredible guests such as Gillian Jacobs, Paul F. Tompkins, as well as star of I, Claudius, Sir Patrick Stewart. And his son, non-sir Daniel Stewart. Don't worry, Dan, you'll get there someday. iPodius is the name of the show. Every week from MaximumFun.org for only 12 weeks. Get them at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined today by uh, Issa Lopez and we are talking about Blade Runner. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit more about the writing process of this particular script because it's it's a fascinating, um, I think, means that it got to Ridley Scott but David or sorry Hampton Foucher was um the one who was doing the primary work on it um and he was not a writer uh he was an actor and you know he hadn't directed anything yet but he said quote I had been what you might call an underground filmmaker and never got a chance to get anything that I had written and that I had wanted to direct off the ground. Over the years, I eventually learned that the way to do that was to do something that was commercially feasible. It was around 1975, and I decided to look for a property that had some kind of commercial feasibility. I'm not a science fiction fan, and I am ignorant of science fiction, but someone suggested that I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I saw in it a possibility. I didn't think of writing it or directing it. just thought that if I got something that like, was like that going as a producer, it would put me into more familiar ground in front office Hollywood. So I decided to option the book, end quote. So here you have a, a guy who desperately wants to be directing something and he's finding that the way to go about it, to have someone let him do this is to produce and it wasn't, you know, his career goal necessarily to produce. He, he wanted to be directing eventually, but it was, you know, kind of um, an, a, a strange kind of uh, twisty path to get to that point. Um, and I, I think that that's an, I mean, it's an interesting thing because he ended up writing the script. You know, he didn't just produce it. It was, um, you know, in effect, um, he wasn't able to get the rights. Um, His friend Brian Kelly, also a former actor, wanted to be a producer. And um, his friend Brian Kelly was able to secure the rights because, uh, you know, Dick needed money, apparently. And uh, then he couldn't seem to get any kind of meeting for anything going on. And he said, quote, Brian entreated me into doing, if not a screenplay, at least a treatment. I refused at first, but Barbara Hershey, the actress who knew about all of this, told me it was a perfect way to achieve what I was trying to do. If I believed that this is was what I wanted to do, and if I wanted to make it happen, why didn't I write it? So I made a 50-50 deal with Brian and I started work on the first draft, end quote. So, he didn't even want to write this movie can you imagine that you're like i don't know
1: <laughs> what I, I, I find interesting is that it's it's so hard to adapt a novel I, um it's it's very hard to adapt any ip and make it into an effective movie um philip k novel is particularly well the, all of his work is so strange and um mm-hmm. And I can, the for me, the central concept, the central conflict in the novel is uh, Decker deciding if he's human or he's a replicant, which mm-hmm. is not at the center of Blade Runner. Blade Runner, for me, and what I read in it, is... Uh, not as much as about, about the nature of, of a man being good, as you just said, which it is there. You know, it's so interesting to listen to what was the original intention. What comes across at me is mm-hmm. what makes us human and um, and the nature, for example, of memories, how memories that can be false, but they still make, make us human, how we treasure oh, yeah. them. And mm-hmm. how when we die and not knowing when when that's going to happen, but knowing that it's unescapable. Uh, the the last thing that we leave to someone else is memories, is the nature of memory, the nature of, of what makes us who we are and if we are mm-hmm. able to share it or not. Um, there's this quote that I love from... Um, Heart of Darkness, the, the Conrad novel, at the beginning when the story is going to be told by Marlow, the narrator of the story, he says, we live as we dream, alone. And, and I think Blade Runner is about that. It's about how impossible it is to share mm-hmm. what the experiences that make us, even when you were there with someone else. And they disappear when we disappear, which is the central conflict that gives us anxiety on every day level you know yes. that's why the movie i think is so powerful
0: um i wanted to uh talk about getting fired from your own script <laughs> because that's what <laughs> that's what hampton fancher uh went through um because uh he wasn't Able to write, he just didn't want to write what Ridley Scott had um, had in mind. He just because he just didn't think that it could it could work. And um, and he said, "quote On the dialectical level, when it came to those areas that I disagreed on and felt justified in disagreeing, I would usually win the argument and feel satisfied that my point had been proven. But two or three weeks later, we would have the same argument all over again." He was just steadfast steadfastly hooked into wanting things that I wouldn't do. As pre production began and things really had to be nailed down, it got really hairy. I wasn't hired writers. I wasn't a hired writer. I was a producer. So it wasn't as if Ridley could just say, don't do this and don't do that. And I would do it. I was also a producer. Finally, I said, because it was Ridley's film in the end, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to get somebody else to do it because I won't. I really didn't think he would do it because the time was too short. <laughs> we came up with what I thought and what many people think was a very wonderful script. It has all those things that I wanted, but they did get somebody else. And it turned out to be David Peoples just about two weeks before shooting started, end quote. Um,
1: <laughs> that happens <laughs> so often. Yep. <laughs> it has happened to me. And, uh, and here's the irony. I've been fired from writing a script that I am going to direct, get that. <laughs> that a story that I started, I generated, I nurtured. And then at some point go like, I don't think you are getting the story. We're going to bring someone else, uh, but we will get it back to you because you're the director. <laughs> Which for me, oh it's, it's incredible. You know, all the, you know, after a long career writing, I've seen it all. I've seen my first the first script that I wrote that got into production. Um I wrote uh, I don't know, maybe 12 drafts of it over the course of 3 years.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: when the director was on board, uh the amount of changes and the reasons for those changes, I I, I can't even. I, I still I think I, I wake up in the night with nightmares, and uh, and in the middle of of, of shooting it, um, she called a couple of of writer friends of her to write scenes on those lie and showed up at the set ready to shoot them, and the, the producers stopped her and called me. It was it was such a mess. I did learn what you <laughs> that yeah no no it it was insane, and then. <laughs> Uh, at the end when when the movie was finished and i had a step back and away from that mess um i was just a writer i she she made a cut and um and showed it and uh and it was a mess and so she left the movie and they called me the writer to cut it and make sense of it it's mm-hmm. it's insane um but what i learned very early on is I, I, I'm I not supposed to watch the movies that I've written and didn't direct. <laughs> you
0: know, I, I don't do it.
1: I, I don't do it. And, um, and I, I at some point in my career, I could afford the luxury of not having to sell scripts um, on a daily basis. But right now, I don't know how long it's going to last. Mm-hmm. The way this business works, one day everybody takes a call from you. And the next day, nobody remembers your name and you just drop <laughs> everything and go make your own movie and then mm-hmm. recycle the entire experience. But um, I don't have to sell scripts uh, for someone else to direct as is right now.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: said, what has happened is I've written a couple of scripts for me to direct that along the way, getting into this weird universe of, well, what you want this movie to become is not what I want for it. So I'm yeah. going to step back. And sometimes the scripts don't die and they keep uh, bouncing around and eventually find another director. And mm-hmm. so I don't think I'm done uh, experiencing movies uh, being directed by someone else. I think I'm still waiting and I know it happens. <laughs> of course it happens <laughs> that amazing yes. directors find the scripts. I, I, I can't wait for that experience, you know. But uh, but it's so complicated.
0: Um, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll get into some more Harrison Ford stuff and definitely into some more uh, Ridley Scott anecdotes. But uh, there's so much good stuff to dig into that uh, we'll have tons to talk about. We'll be right back. Hey, Max Funsters, it's Jesse Thorne. This week on my public radio interview show, Bullseye, I'm talking with Tina Fey and Robert Carlock about creating Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 30 Rock, and also just kind of why they're the best at everything. There was a window of time when we would just go to awards things and pick up our prizes and party with the people from Mad Men. You can find Bullseye at MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today uh, by Isa Lopez, and we're talking about Blade Runner. I wanted to talk about earlier. You know, you had said that you were in love with Harrison Ford, and um, that's the reason why you saw it. A lot. I steal am. Very... I still am. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> a lot of people were kind of disappointed with this character because, as as you said, it's it's much darker. And um, as Ridley Scott said, "quote I hadn't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark when I first went to talk to Harrison about the role. I said, I got this great idea. We're going to do this Marlowish character." bogart and that sort of thing and he said just done it can't do it and i said hell and then i next said what i want is this sort of unshaven individual and he said can't do that i've just done it so he suddenly changed (laughs) gear completely and went through this rather frightening process of cutting all his hair off it was a brave thing for him to do end quote (laughs) Um,
1: so yeah i found that
0: it's uh, fascinating uh yeah He's very well-shaven in the movie though. <laughs>
1: but uh but uh the the thing is you know what's interesting about the 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 movie experience regarding movie stars what a really what a real movie star is and and Harrison mm-hmm. definitely is one is that um on one side you're seeing when they're doing a proper job um the director and and the actor um you're seeing this new character, hopefully that you have never seen before. But on the other hand, in the end, it's the same person, so the reactions and the gestures are familiar. So you're seeing Deckard, who has his own mannerisms and his own rhythms, especially rhythms, I think. But you're seeing Indy. In so many moments, the way that he receives a punch, and and Ford is very good at that, at mm-hmm. receiving a punch, um, and he he is confused after after a shock, and the way that uh, he delivers uh, a bar is very much Indiana Jones. So that that becomes a, a strange blended thing where it is it is uh, Han Solo, but
0: it is Indiana Jones, but it is that card i mean going along with that too though is is the thing where ridley scott had to promise him that he was going to make him a different character but at the same time he had to protect the fact that people were going to see this movie because they expected a quote-unquote harrison ford character and he he had to kind of navigate that world of making sure, like you say, that the, you know, the Indiana jones comes out, that the, um, it, it, you know, that the, like the Han Solo-ness comes out event- occasionally and, and not kind of turn the viewers off. He said, quote, because this is in the original cut quote, there was a bit more sexuality between Rachel and Deckard. It got a bit rough, actually, and I needed Deckard to be sympathetic. Harrison Ford was playing a character opposite to what people expected from him. Also, the hero or antihero finally gets his butt kicked by the so-called bad guy who turns out not to be a bad guy. That's what's interesting about the movie, right? Otherwise, it's all down to bad guys and good guys, which is really boring, end quote. So there was actually, and know that in the break, you were talking about the fact that things got kind of rough between Rachel and Deckard when they, when they become, quote unquote romantic and um and it was actually even more of that to the point where people really lost sympathy for this character and would have lost sympathy for a kind of harrison ford character so that had to be a really difficult thing to navigate
1: i i completely agree and i and i can see that the reference i mean it is a, a a modern noir by all means um the ultimate modern noir was possibly, but um, but you can see the influence on that. The funny thing is, I'm I interrupted a binge that I'm doing of uh, noir films. Um, mm-hmm. The Criterion Channel has this this Columbia oh yeah collection, so uh, yes. yeah, which is amazing. And uh, I I I watched re- right before starting it. I watched Sunset Boulevard, which is not part of the collection um, because that's a Paramount. But then from there, I went to uh, Gilda and to The Lady of Shanghai. And, um, and I'm, these are movies that I've seen a number of times, but don't, mm-hmm. I'm watching them again. And then I go, well, Cabaret, which is different, but it's still the same era. And then, um, and then I watch Blade Runner. And, uh, and what amazes me is the, the terribly complicated relationship that these male characters and filmmakers and writers have with a female figure. Yeah. And, and how scary women are. Uh, and and they're incredibly powerful. Yeah. Be it Sunset Boulevard, be it Gilda, especially, be it, uh, be it the replicants in this movie. They're scary killing monsters, gorgeous mm-hmm. one. Or they subdue and they become this soft lady that after a couple of good slaps <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. decides
1: that, yeah, she loves you. And um, and this is the cinema that formed us and formed how we narrate female figures. Yeah. Um, as much as I love the movie, and I love it, uh, it did shock me yesterday because it, I just didn't remember the roughness of that, "Quote unquote love scene." I don't know if it's a love scene. He yes. tells her violently to tell him he wants she wants him. It's 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 very very violent. You know. Yeah, it's disturbing. The one, yeah, it is to the one female character
0: that is not trying to eat you alive, basically. Um, before before we go, I wanted to ask you um, a, a, a question about about this, because um, Ridley Scott said, quote, For some bizarre reason, we never noticed that somebody's thumb was in the bottom left-hand corner of a shot. The phone booth had an automatic door, and I couldn't de-automate it. And I was getting really beaten up because we were up against the gun, so I just shot. And there was the bloody thumb in the frame. It's little mistakes like that that you're tempted to leave in. It's a signature that says, yes, it is fiction. It is movie making, and quote and talking I about the humanity thumb. <laughs> it's, it's funny i mean like people who who love to kind of obsess about film mistakes i know i will never quite understand because I, I like the fact that sometimes you can see the humanity in it and you know speaking of what is human and what is shiny or perfect you know i i like sometimes where it's a little bit strange so he you know he ultimately removed the the thumb and, and all the other mistakes but he was tempted to leave it in and I kind of wish that he had you know like you have all this power with digital filmmaking now to polish everything to make it you know uh, so perfect and and yet there's something that I miss about the kind of grime of sometimes there's a hair in the gate you know.
1: Well, my father used to tell me a story that I don't know if it's true, as many of the stories that my dad told me, um, which was <laughs> that uh, Michelangelo, you know, and i and, and I rather at this point in my life leave them like that. Uh, Michelangelo, um, when he when he made uh, Moses, and uh, and he finished it, he stepped back and looked at it. And, um, and found that it was too perfect. And so he had the mullet in his hand and he came <laughs> to it and hit it on a toe, breaking a little bit of the toe to then make it perfect. <laughs> and I don't know if that I, stuff is, I don't know if that shit is true, man, but I wish it, it was <laughs> because, mm-hmm. uh, because there's so, there's such a thing as too perfect. And I think, the movie completely understand. There's so much sublime beauty that is covered in grime and and uh, you know ripped stockings and imperfect hair that mm-hmm. it would be perfect in, in to to have to stay that way. Particularly oh. in Blade Runner, I think
0: Yes. Well, uh, Isa, I want to thank you so much For joining us again on the show You're our only repeat guest And I'm happy that it was you to kick us off um, And remind everyone <laughs> What it is to be human um, And people Can watch your movie, Tigers Are Not Afraid On Shutter Still And um, they can find your other films On VOD right now, right? It is true, and, uh, and uh, part of the reason
1: That we're talking today is that Tigers got a treatment that none of my other movies did so far. And it's such a joy that um, they, they made this physical release of it, mm-hmm. this um, DVD and a steel book. And they put, they let me put everything I could think of. And i had <laughs> so much. So set the signs, casting calls with the kids. And you can see the distance um how they looked at the beginning and and where we got in the movie with them. Oh, fun! Um, we have that. We have a, a forty five uh, long feature of how we made the movie and the kids. You know, they they have their interviews. It's 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 so much fun. And there's an hour long uh, Q and A with Guillermo del Toro in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of great great stuff in that in that well, physical release. Fantastic, and,
0: and yeah. you know, <laughs> physical media. Physical media is great. I I love it. So if you can, please pick up a copy of Tigers Are Not Afraid and you can get all the bonus information and bonus extras. And uh, thank you so much, Isa. My pleasure, as always. We'll do it again. with the next movie for sure. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Uh, obviously, we've started doing something a little different at the end of each episode. I'm giving a staff pick recommendation of a film directed by a woman. And I know people have a little bit of time on their hands and, you know, you're looking for ways to um, feel human again. And the show is all about highlighting the great work of female filmmakers. So, here we go. Uh, today's uh, is hopefully thematically connected. In fact, it is. It is Captain, Captain Bigelow's Strange Days. Um, for some reason this one just keeps getting left off of Catherine Bigelow's um, you know uh, full career. People just kind of don't think about it as much because you know Point Break is obviously amazing. Near Dark as we've talked about before with uh, Karen Kusama is amazing but Strange Days is so strange. Uh, It is so informed by the time period. It came out in 1995. 1992 was just a huge, huge time for, um, you know, it felt like sometimes the world was ending um, because this is a movie that's talking about um, abuse of power. It's talking about rape. It's talking about surveillance and it's talking about racism. And, you know, this was a time after the LA riots and um, the really, really terrible Rodney King verdict and where Los Angeles was just on fire. And so this is such a, a really wonderful movie with a a really fantastic performance from Angela Bassett, who, you know, should have been in a, an easy action star after this. And I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that she, you know, still has those days in her where she can do that. But please give Strange Days a shot and check that out. And uh, after that, you know, if you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePot or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group, too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash Switchblade Sisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org.
1: I don't work here anymore.